They should win the game. They get a point. We, we score a perfectly good goal. Make it 2-0. Game's done, done dusted. We win the game. This was cost us two points today. It's standard. 10 past 10. Most of the children are probably in bed, but the, these, these boys are fucking mentality giants. It's unbelievable. And Shikiri hasn't he the funniest shape. He's a little chunky fella. They'll fight for the tree. The joke. Gone about far this, far that. Help the officials out. Clearly they need help. Clearly we play in the Premier League. It's a joke. It's a joke. So it's week one of the Champions League and Liverpool's victorious night in Madrid seems like a long time ago now with defeat in Napoli on Tuesday night. But it's all fate, it's all meant to be. Losing to Napoli is all part of the grand plan towards yet another Champions League title tilt all the way to the Ataturk Stadium in Istanbul next May, 15 years after that famous night in 2005. Well, that's according to at Salah six times on Twitter. Hello and welcome to this week's Tree of the Back <laughs> podcast. How are you, lads? Hey Kev, hey Ken. What a star, Kev. What a star. Yeah, how you lads? <laughs> um, one step now inside the, the Champions League group stage, we'll be talking to Bleach Report's Sam Teig about the contenders and pretenders and some of the exciting talent that have already been catching the eye in this year's competition. That's all coming in part two, but with one night down, I think we'll spend a few minutes talking on Tuesday night's games. Um, Phil, you'll have been disappointed with the result in Napoli last night. It was a decent performance from Liverpool, um, certainly far better than this tie last year. Do you think they were unlucky not to come away with something? Yeah, I don't know about you, Kev, but I could do without Liverpool having to play in Naples again for the next five years or so. I mean, <laughs> it just, like, like I completely agree with what you said. They were a lot better this year than they were last year. Um, I thought their play for three quarters of the pitch was quite strong, and then the final third stuff was just kind of a few yards off. I think it was kind of encapsulated by that break in the second half of Mane and Salah uh, from the corner. And um, Mane did well to draw the defenders and he had a simple, it looked simple enough ball to Salah and he woefully overhit it and the chance was gone. Uh, it, that kind of summed up Liverpool for me. I thought uh, Fabinho in particular and Henderson to a lesser extent were quite good in midfield. Um, I don't know what it is about the pitch in Naples. It always just looks massive. Mm. And... Um, I don't know if it's not something that I don't know if it doesn't suit Liverpool particularly well. Kind of similar to how um, they haven't always played their best at Wembley on on a similarly sized pitch. Um, like if you're going to lose a game, you may as, in the Champions League, you may as well lose your hardest away first up when you still have five games to sort it out. And ultimately, it shouldn't make much of a bones as to how their Champions League journey goes this year. But it is just kind of annoying, and, and I'd imagine it'll annoy Klopp and his team that they weren't able to put last year's ghost to bed. So they're quite good at, if they suffer a setback in a particular ground or against a particular team, they're quite good at the next season, kind of putting that to rights. Uh, and they didn't manage it last night. Do, do you know what, guys? Like, I'll, I'll not tell a lie. I only saw the last 10 minutes of the game. <laughs> so so basically, like it looked like he was absolute, absolutely hammered. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, not, like, it's... Do you know if it's like you said, like Napoli is just a bit of a nightmare to go to. Like the, the San Paolo just tends to do funny things to even the best sides. Um, but it was in the aftermath of the game, at least on judging from Twitter, it, it seemed to me like there was like nearly a collective like shrug of the shoulders in terms of the defeat. It was like kind of like no big deal um, because basically. You know, it's one game, and it's obviously not good to be to, to, to go down to, to to a loss. But you know, it feels like you'll get it back at some stage or another. Like you know, you'll you'll go on to sort of easily qualify from the group. Um, but I mean, in reality, from what I've read, uh, Liverpool probably were a bit unlucky to be to, to go down to a, a defeat, and, and maybe like you know, a point was maybe the right result. Um, Going on, 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 you know, I know Napoli scored the two, the two late um, goals, but overall it seemed to be a, 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 an evenly contested game. Uh, I thought, I, I can't get, I'll tell you what, I can't get my head around. Um, the one takeaway from the game was that how has nobody signed this guy Koulibaly? He's just unbelievable. Yeah. Like he, he's he's up there with Van Dijk for me, um, in terms of in terms of the best defenders in the world. Uh, it's it's amazing that nobody's just come in and signed him. He just seems to have absolutely everything. Um, if you're if you're Klopp, like I know you've I, I know Klopp had kind of said that they weren't going to be making too many big signs at all this year. Um, but yeah, 
It's like, how have United not gone, United or City even, how have City not gone in and snapped this lad up? It's just unbelievable. Um, but yeah, yeah, overall, I don't think it's the biggest thing, you know, I think, it, do you know what? It would have been, it's probably a good thing that Liverpool maybe have, have lost this game because it'll give them a bit of a kick up the, the hole. Do you know that kind of way? It'll, it'll, it might kind of realign slightly expectations. And I was going to bring up Koulibaly there in my point because I think a lot of the kind of uh, effect that is kind of escaping a lot of people is Napoli actually have a really, really good team. Mm. Um, and I mean, if we hark back to last year's game in the San Paolo, they destroyed us from start to finish. Um, I mean, the players that they have in attacking options with Dries Mertens and Insigne and Lozano, um, even the players that they were able to bring on, um, I mean... You can say what you like about Lorente, but he is still a very effective forward. Mm. Um, and Peter Zielinski and uh, the kid Milik didn't come on at all. No, um, no. From 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 Poland. Mm. Um, so they are actually a very talented side. Um, and to reiterate what you said, Keen, I mean, if last night wasn't an advertisement for Koulibaly, I mean, you'd wonder why. You'd imagine all the big teams in Europe are looking at him, and you you'd have to wonder why no one has. Uh, has gone out and spent huge money when you see some of the money that's been spent on goalkeepers um, and attacking players over the years. I mean, mm-hmm. he looks like a guy who, I mean, if he was in the city side, they'd be unbelievably hot-tipped for for every competition. Um, he'd probably lift Manchester United far beyond what they're doing at the moment. Um, and even some of the, the likes of, I don't know, would Atletico have the funds for him? or PSG or Juventus, but kind of pushing them towards even more success. Mm. Koulibaly's pocket is so big. Salah, Firmino, Amani, like, <laughs> li- just fit nicely in there. Like, you know what I mean? They're still rumbling around for some change <laughs> down at the bottom. Like, and Yeah, no, completely agree. Completely agree, Kev. Um, do you think it was a penalty for, for Robertson? I mean, it came out today that apparently he deleted his Twitter account based on all the abuse he got from Liverpool fans, which sounds absolutely ridiculous. Robertson uh, did? Con- considering did, how, yeah. how good he's been over the past wow. two years. I mean, it's it, that's absolutely baffling. Yeah, I've only seen what you've seen, Kevin, that like it was the abuse he was getting um, over the penalty decision. Um, but like I, I think there's a little bit in the idea that like so for whatever the last ten years Liverpool have been in the relative doldrums in terms of European football. You know they've been sc- scrambling for top four, or whatever, ir- irregularly getting it, and kind of once and once every now and again pushing for a league title. But now for like three seasons they've been one of the best teams in Europe. Uh, last season they won the Champions League, so they're the best team in Europe and they're top of the league this year. There, there's kind of a groundswell of. Those that and you know what type of football fan I'm talking about, but that kind of football fan on Twitter, like Mo Salah mm-hmm. of nine, or whatever, whatever your man's name was, right? Who um, doesn't really know or care that much about football, but likes to go on and like reply to Manchester United's official Twitter account with like six stars and stuff like that. And so they're not overly used to Liverpool maybe underperforming. I mean, this is the first game Liverpool have lost. Uh, like if if you don't count the, the Community Shield as a competitive game, it's the first game they've lost in City in January, as, as best I can figure out. Mm-hmm. Uh, or sorry, no, Barcelona in the Champions League. Sorry, mm-hmm. so it's the first game they lost since the first leg of the Champions League. Like it's a, it's it's a significant period of time since they've lost. I think it's just that kind of element now that they're following Liverpool, a bit like the element that kind of followed Barca along on Twitter when they were kind of sweeping all before them, just kind of idiots basically. Like, that that's amazing though. Like I can't believe. Like that's actually quite a you know clever savvy tactic. You know what I mean? You know you do something a little bit dodgy, a little bit sort of you know untoward. Just delete your Twitter account and just nobody can get at you. Do you know that kind of way? It's like if you send a dodgy tweet and it goes viral. Like you know, like do you know like that did yeah. not happen or it didn't happen of the awards? You know, yeah, yeah. D- you know, you, you do, yeah, you do something like that and like just people from all over just getting stuck into you. Just delete your Twitter account and just like come back when when it's all settled down. I love it, Andy Robertson. <laughs> <laughs> Because he does come across like a fairly laid-back guy, so you'd imagine mm, this kind of stuff mm. wouldn't really get to him. But he's probably, you know, kind of thinking ahead in in terms of that. You know, and I not only am I going to listen to it, I'm not going to read it, I'm not going to take any heed of it. Um, but it is still, it's, it's. I think it's a little bit embarrassing in terms of Liverpool fans. Um, and kind of, you know, it highlights like Phil said, uh, kind of 
that underbelly of, of Liverpool Twitter. And I mean, over the years we've had instances from Arsenal Twitter. We, we, we kind of every club, every big club has that kind of core of absolute cretins, you know, behind um, the fake and fake names. Um, oh, yeah. Moving on, um, there was a lot of heat praised on Frank Lampard after the win at the weekend, um, with the, especially with the young England players that came in and did a, did a job there against Wolves. But I was still kind of surprised to see he started a lot of that yote um, against Valencia on Tuesday night, uh, which led to a 1-0 defeat. Keane, you must have been fairly proud to see Tammy Abraham do the business at the weekend, but you think yeah. Lampard should <laughs> Maybe he should. He, Lampard should have trusted some of the older heads. I mean, he had Pedro and Giroud on the bench. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I mean, if you're Tam, if you're Tammy Abraham, you've just scored a hat trick. You know, you'd be like sitting there going, "No, hold on, I want to play Champions League." Do you know that kind of way? He's still young. He's still fit. Like, you know, it's, it's the start of the season. You know, um. So. If I would, if I were like Tammy Abraham or if I was Mason Mount, I'd be like, no way, don't drop me. Like I want to play this, but like Lampard has to be savvy enough to know that. Look, just get your points on the board here quickly. Like you know, even if it's just a draw, like play your seniors in these big games, uh, and you know, keep keep your kids like nice and warm for the for for the Premier League, the bread and butter. Um, and that's what he might do at the weekend. He might actually throw yeah. in kind of. He might do it in reverse. He might throw Giroud up top and and Pedro on. But like, yeah, look, I was really, really, yeah, I was proud of Abraham. Like, I, I kind of <laughs> like. Don't get me wrong. Like, you know, being a Villa fan, and and you know, I hope he doesn't do it too well. You know, that kind of way. But it's nice to see him score goals. He backed himself to kind of like go back to Chelsea and and do it, and he's doing it like um, from from a slow start. Um, so yeah, I'm happy in that sense. But um, I mean, the whole thing seemed to be a bit of a shit show last night. I mean, like this is a Valencia team that are coming off five um, two mm. defeat to, to, to Barcelona. Barcelona, of course, like but but still, you know, and, and they're obviously they're kind of managerless with Marcelino being sacked. Um, so and then then the whole penalty shenanigans and Ross Barkley, <laughs> you know, Frank Lampard coming out later on saying like Ross Barkley is actually his penalty taker, which was the biggest lie of all time. Like, you, know, you can visibly, <laughs> yeah, you can visibly see Lampard's nose growing on the TV. Like I mean, when he when he was telling when he was telling the lie, um, but yeah, overall, I don't think you can kind of. I don't think you can blame Lampard too much, but I think he needs to be learning from this sort of stuff. Do you know that kind of way? Wasn't it? Wasn't it earlier on in the season? I think he, he threw um, he threw the the youngsters in ahead of the seniors, and it kind of backfired on him. The the, the, the game is kind of was it the Super Cup? Or was it United? No, four 0 against United. It was four 0 against United. It was four 0 against United. He, he started the kids, and it just went all about tits up. Um, and yeah, I just would have like. In big games, you know, like that, just give it to your seniors and, and let them and let them kind of like use their experience. I don't know. Yeah, that that would be my contention on it. Talking about Jose Mourinho here, lads. Like you know, <laughs> and Alan Hansen, you'll win, you'll win nothing with kids. I, I don't think Chelsea are going to win Anthony with Giroud on or Pedro on the pitch either. Like no, no, no. But but it's about using them. It's about using them sort of at the right times. No. No, I I agree. I was kind of. Yeah, messing a little bit, but like I, mm. I think if if I was a Chelsea fan, you know, there but for the grace of God, um, I I'd be happy enough with the fact that like Lampard's kind of in a free hit, right? We said that at the start of the season, the transfer ban makes things a little difficult. The squad's probably not in the sort of shape that you'd like. If it was, Frank Lampard wouldn't be its manager because you would have been able to attract a better manager. Um, but like you said, came Abraham scoring a hat trick at the weekend. You kind of had to keep him in, um. They're definitely imperfect and they're there to be got at. But if I'm a Chelsea fan, I kind of like the idea that Lampard's given you to Ted that these are his lads, kind of for better or for worse, in a free hit. Um, Because if you're not going to do it now and if you're not going to give them a chance now, when are you going to give them the chance? Because when the transfer Mm. abandons and they cycle in, whoever, like bring back AVB or Nagelsmann or whoever they decide is the next thing that they want for six months, they're going to cycle Mm. back Mm. into that old Chelsea thing that we're used to. Like, are, are they going to win much? No, I don't think so. Would things have been a little different with Shiru and Pedro on the pitch? Probably. 
Um, but I, ju- I just think the way they've been playing, um, and if they're going to be his guys and they're going to be his team, I think it's fair enough he gave him a shot. Um, but this is what's going to happen with Chelsea because ultimately yeah. they're kind of a topsy-turvy, upside-down team. Um, and they're going to leave themselves open to things like this. Um, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, to be fair, yeah. you're just looking at the stats, lads. Like, I'm just looking at the stats here, and, and Chelsea have actually like had 21 attempts, six on target to Valencia's eight and two on target. So I mean, you could say like 56 percent, 56 percent percent uh, possession. Like you could say they kind of dominated the game, and and like again, I didn't really see too much of it. Just just a bit of the highlights. Um, you could probably you could probably say that you could make a a case that you know maybe it was the right choice and they just ended up just losing and it's just one of those things but I do what I would like to kind of what I would be interested in is like how they then go and react to this at the weekend because you've seen it with Wolves right this is the thing with like we're playing like I was kind of thinking about this earlier on it's the thing about when you play youngsters in the Champions League like this is that they get all hyped up and it's their like big thing you know the Champions League it's they've never played in it before and they're, they're so hyped up and excited about it is like is like then Premier League football kind of like when they come back to the weekend is a bit more of a downer do you know because you've seen that and in terms of like you know emotional energy and physical energy like you know is it a downer when they come back to the weekend because you've seen that with Wolves and the Europa League they've like they've you know they've excelled in the Europa League and they're just not doing it in the in the, the Premier League when they come back down to earth do you know what I mean so it's like do certain squads kind of like prioritise certain things um, I, you, you know, unconsciously, um, I, and that might be like that might be kind of the big thing that really upsets Chelsea now. So I'm, I'll be interested to see how they get on the weekend. Um, well, they do have Liverpool um, at home, so oh, yes, yeah. for for a, for a lot of those young players, it's uh, it's like out of the frying pan and into the fire. Um, yeah, yeah, in terms nice. of that one. Good um, luck with that, lads. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's that's not an easy uh, one to come off after losing in the Champions League. Um, it all kind of nearly backfired for Lampard. I don't know if you saw Francis Coughlin's challenge on Mason Mount. I did. I seen the still of it. Yeah, it was Filthy. awful. It yeah. was one of those where I think once you've seen it, you kind of out shield your eyes when you're scrolling through Twitter and, uh, and clips are popping up. He, he kind of has that in him, Coughlin. He, he's done that kind of a couple of times, like to various levels of harm to the players. But he kind of has that in him a little bit. Uh, like whether you want to call it mistimed or nasty, um, if you're being generous or not, um, yeah, it's, it's not the first time he's done something like that. I don't think. Yeah, I, and and the mad thing about it is though, what I would say is that like I seen the still of it, and the still and even a slow mo just makes it look even like just just makes it look a hundred times worse than it could be. Do you know that yeah, kind of way? Yeah, yeah. Like, did like was I didn't see the I didn't see it actually happen in real time. Like, so was it as bad as as it looked in the still? The the clip is pretty bad. Mm. You you do grimace at it. But I mean, like the the game is happening at, at such a frenetic pace, even yeah. at the, the way Chelsea play. It's like you know some of these some of these like it's just I'm not saying that you're inviting this kind of thing, but. You know, you you do leave yourself open to like pretty bad challenges, and um, because the speed of the game is just getting quicker every season, um, and because you play at such a pace like that Chelsea do, especially in transition, it's like yeah, like these kind of things are gonna are, are likely to happen. You know, I mean, it's shit, but it's 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 yeah, it's it's gonna happen. <laughs> I can't remember his name. Rob Little. He took yeah, the guy who ran away and left his wife for a young. And depends on the quality of the eggs. In the supermarket you have eggs class 1, class 2, class 3. And some are more expensive than others and some give you better omelets. So when, when the class 1 eggs are in waitress and you cannot go there. Real Madrid is no Barcelona. It's off his small team. Have many problems. I want my players play with balls.
We're on with Sam Tai of Bleacher Report and the BR Football Ranks podcast. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thanks for having me, guys. How are you? Good, very good. Um, so before we get into the exotic players and teams and the content uh, on the continent in this year's competition, we'll get stuck into the English teams in the Champions League. We've already seen Liverpool and Chelsea suffer defeat on Tuesday night, while Spurs and City kicked the, kick off their campaigns on Wednesday. I suppose, where would you rank the English teams this season? I mean, Chelsea have had their problems, as we all know. Spurs kind of have an uphill battle trying to go on better than last year, while Liverpool will have a massive target on their backs trying to go for two in a row. So City, you would imagine, will have a massive red circle around the competition um, as one they just have to go and win this year. Yeah, for City, it kind of feels like almost everything, doesn't it? Um, But for some reason, I don't know what it is, they just don't seem to quite get along with the Champions League and, and neither do their fans. I, I don't know what it is, but it, we've seen enough evidence now that it just won't click for them. Um, uh, I don't really have that much faith that they can win it this year. And playing into that is obviously the fact that they've got no defenders. Uh, that's, a, that's a massive problem, isn't it? Um, they've five, five, points, five points off Liverpool in the Premier League table. And look, uh, I don't expect them to have too many problems in a group with Dinamo Zagreb and Shakhtar Donetsk, uh, particularly now that Paolo Fonseca, the manager uh, who's previously overachieved with Shakhtar, has now gone to Roma. Uh, he was kind of their X factor. They're not going to have too many issues there, but I do find it difficult to say that they're going to go one further. Um, so Liverpool, for me, even despite the you know the bad start, the loss, although they were, I think they were they were fine in that game. They just kind of fell the wrong side of a a few key moments. I'm not sure what you guys thought about the penalty, but. I'm not sure I'm 100% in agreement with the officials there. Um, I say Liverpool have the best chance and I think Chelsea have the worst chance. I'm not on board with Chelsea at all. Um, They played well against Wolves, but it's the first time they've played well this season. And watching Frank Lampard's derby last year, a lot of the familiar issues tactically are coming up. Um, They press very high, but they don't have the cutting edge to make it count. They exhaust themselves. And that's why they concede so many goals and the defensive organisation is, is, is kind of lacking. So Liverpool, I think, have the, have the best chance of the English teams to, to, to go ahead. And Spurs, I, I don't know, man. Like, how, I still, can't, still kind of can't believe they got to the final yeah. last year. Uh, that yeah. still feels a bit surreal. So I don't know what to make of them. Um, as, we, as we record, they're 85 minutes into a game with Olympiacos and they're drawing two all. That's not the most... Promising start, is it? I guess. Mm. Sam, just to jump in, really, um, I, I, we were kind of chatting about it before in, in the first part of the show. I, I wanted to get your thoughts on on Lampard playing the kids um, in, in you know the opening Champions League game. We kind of, well, I, 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 my contention was that like you you need to go with it, your seniors there at that point and, and you know let their experience kind of tell, get it maybe a point or three on the board and leave the Premier League the bread and butter to the kids like so I was just I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that um I can I can see your point of view but ultimately he's not going to change he's not going to change his philosophy here he's just chucking him in isn't he he's Mm. absolutely fearless Mm. um I'm not surprised he did it um in in a way it's nice to see these players get that opportunity because so many people Mm. would be so cautious with them um I do think that there probably should have been room for Christian Pulisic um, in in that team, um, but the rest of it, I'm not. I don't have too many concerns. I mean, they played quite well, and I've got to remember they went into the game against Valencia, who are basically in crisis. Um, yeah, yeah. Just, just just sacked their manager Marcelino for literally no reason whatsoever. Wow. Hired someone who is not as good as his, at his job. Their first game, they got battered by Barcelona. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know what? If Lampard, if Lampard was feeling fairly confident about this one at home, I wouldn't have argued with him. And, of course, they were the width of a crossbar away from getting that point anyway, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, Sam, jumping back to City there for a second, um, and on your point about their their defensive issues, I mean, they're, they're way for 10 now with the injuries to um, Laporte and Stones there yesterday. Um, and a part one of the show, we were kind of speculating um, given his performance last night, how no one has snapped up Kalidou Koulibaly at this stage. I mean, he, he looks to be on par with with, uh, with Virgil van Dijk as one of the best in, in Europe. Yeah, it's a little bit strange, isn't it? Um, I remember last season I put together a piece on Beach Report, which was I was trying to predict who would become the first £100 million centre-back. Um, it was shortly after, about a year after van Dijk had obviously gone for quite a lot of money and Lucas Hernandez has obviously since gone for a similar amount, but not quite as much. 
Um, I was trying to figure it out and I whittled it down to Milan, uh, Milan Skriniar of Inter Milan and Kaladu Koulibaly of Napoli, who were both just absolutely amazing. They're just mm-hmm. brilliant. They do absolutely everything you could ask them to do. Skriniar can even shoot from 30 yards and smash it in. So Koulibaly, like we saw it last season in the Champions League because obviously Napoli played Liverpool and Koulibaly mm. really bottled up Salah in one of those games really impressively. We've, we've got enough evidence over the last few years at the top level in games against Juventus in Serie A and in, in the Champions League. So we know that he is one of the best in the world. I would say that he's top three uh, centre-backs mm. in the world. He's on, he's, he's, a, he's on that podium with Van Dijk um, and, and maybe one other, maybe Skriniar. Maybe there's an argument for PK last season. I thought he was very good. Um, I can't believe it either, I guess in short. <laughs> <laughs> because the we don't sign João Cancelo to the array of fullbacks, and I know um, Benjamin Mendy has been injured for quite a while and it's kind of been hard to rely on him, but having lost Vincent Company in the summer, you would have, there would have been a huge gaping hole in that centre-back position that you would imagine they would have been quicker to fill, um, especially given Van Dijk and how he highlighted how, he highlighted how important um, a top-class centre-back is in terms of bringing Liverpool all the way to the Champions League final. Yeah, it's amazing the impact a centre back can have, isn't it? Uh, I don't think we were we were really ready for it as a as a, as a footballing nation uh, for Van Dijk to rip, rip, rip up the script in that way. And Bayern, Bayern obviously then went and took Lucas Hernandez for a similar fee. He can play left back as well, obviously, but he's a centre back as well, and they're hoping he can have that galvanising effect. Um, I guess we're seeing more and more faith put into those kind of players, except in Manchester City blue because they just refuse to do it. Um, I didn't have that much of an issue with it, given they had Stones, Otamendi and Laporte and obviously Fernandinho can play there and they have a couple of kids, Eric Garcia being one. Uh, but Stones and Laporte inside the space of a couple of weeks, it, oh, it's tough. It's really mm. tough. And I guess I'm trying not to apply too much hindsight to it um, and be too critical in that, in that way because I, I was kind of okay with the decision to run with those three and then a rotational fourth. But the fact that you get the two injuries within a couple of weeks of each other, it's just it just changes the outlook. And of course, the worst thing about it all is that Laporte is by far their best centre back, and he's the one that's out until Christmas. Yeah. Mm. Sam, I, I just wanted to ask you in terms of like potential Champions League winners, is there a certain style you think that tends to win Champions League more often than not, like? Basically, what I'm asking you is: is can can Guardiola's city win with the style of football that he employs? Well, I think yes, uh, given the the Barcelona victory under under his well, stewardship and uh, well, yeah, past, but I mean, but... like, it, yeah, yeah, but, but to, to jump in, like, in terms of in, in terms of the Barcelona win, I get I get that point. We we throw Messi in there, and that's not to be ignorant, but just to give further context. I mean, we've seen like Guardiola's Bayern and City struggle to to get to a final again. So you're kind of like, you know, is there that sense that more athletic vertical teams kind of tend to win these win these tournaments? I would say that the biggest factor, genuinely, and this this might sound a bit silly, but I think the biggest factor is <laughs> fortune. Like you have to be mm. so lucky mm. to win a Champions mm. League. Um, to, to win that many knockout ties, particularly over two legs, with this concentration of quality, you need stuff to go your way. And like Real Madrid's, uh, you know, run of three Trans Champions League victories from 2015 to 2018 were inclusive of a tremendous amount of luck in the mm-hmm. knockout stages. I remember a certain game against Bayern Munich and they really should have lost that game um, yeah. due to refereeing decisions and other things that happened. But Flicking through like the last, the last say ten winners or so, there is a variation in style. Um, of course, Chelsea got very lucky in, in 2012. Bayern Munich in 2013 were a completely different type of team to so the Barca team that won it in 09, and of course the Real Madrid team that won it in 16, 17, and 18. So, I, I don't know if there's a particular style that works because things, you know, things come in and out of fashion on football quite quickly, um, and it just depends on what's what's in vogue at the time. Uh, what I would say is that you need to be lucky, and all of the teams that win the Champions League uh, all have a little bit of luck that goes their way. That's not to discredit them, they just, you need it. You, when there's six quality teams like that, you need something to put you over the edge, and it's very often just a bad decision or rubber the green. Good answer. Good answer. I love it. Anyway, sorry, Real Madrid, you're, you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Sam, I was reading your um, your list of, of top 10 breakout stars, uh, potential breakout stars in this year's competition, and you had a 16-year-old Barcelona attacker, uh, Ansu Fati, on top of that pile. Um, Barcelona, they obviously didn't get off to the best of starts on Tuesday night against Dortmund. Um, over, over the past two seasons, they've probably had two of the most flabbergasting knockouts in, in competition history. Um, is Fati good enough to, to change their look and, and kind of turn it around this year? Well, Barca's, uh, Barca's obsession with a terrible away performance in the Champions League stretches back um, quite a few years, actually. Not even just the last two, probably the last three or four. I think it even predates uh, Nesto Valverde. I don't know what is wrong with them when it comes to European away nights. They just find them so, so difficult. Um, even last season, when they beat Leon 5-1 at home, they drew the away leg nil-nil. Uh, I don't know what was going on. Um, Fatty's not going to be the uh, the immediate remedy to this because um, he's a 16-year-old forward. Uh, we've, we've got lots to learn about Fatty in terms of what kind of a player he is. Um, I don't know what his best position is. I couldn't even necessarily tell you what definitely what his best skills are. Um, but you do you can see from when he's come on and played in La Liga um, that he's on the same wavelength as some very, very good players. Uh, he's on the same wavelength as Frankie de Jong, as, uh, as Antoine Griezmann. And this sounds kind of simple, but Usman Dembele has been searching for that same wavelength for two and a half years and they won't give him the code. Mm-hmm. So it's not actually mm-hmm. as easy as it sounds like. He just he, 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 he melds and he blends with these players, which is a sign of quality, which is why I'm so excited about him. Uh, yeah. I would not want to sit here and say, yeah, this kid is going to change everything <laughs> for them. Because if there's one player that can change everything for them, it's it's Lionel Messi, um, mm. but it's nice to have that. It's nice to have someone else stepping forward in this way. They spent all summer trying really hard with their business to deviate as much as possible from the over reliance on Lionel Messi. That's why they bought Griezmann, who can step in. That's why they bought Frankie De Jong, who can dictate the rhythm of a midfield uh, when they need him to. Um, but Fatty is another one of those people uh, who can be who can be turned to, uh, and I'm I'm super excited to see exactly what mm. he turns out as because I don't I don't know, and that's cool that's cool that's good. Like it's it's nice to be just just sit back and watch a player like that and be surprised and be impressed and be thrilled. Sam, it's uh, Phil here, um, just with a, a quick one. Maybe we'll we'll, we'll stay in Spain. Um, it, it's been what we we'll call I suppose an interesting summer for a lot of the traditional powers in uh, in European football and probably nowhere. More so than at Real Madrid with uh, Zidane coming back, Hazard joining Pogba, not joining Bale, not going anywhere. Um, it's not the happiest ship at the minute, and that probably doesn't sound conducive to uh, a big push at home or in Europe. But against that, Zidane's won the Champions League literally every season he's been a manager. Uh, do you give them any hope of giving it a better crack this year than they did last? Oh, it sounds really weird to just write them off, given you know the recent success and and the yeah. success that you just say, which is you know Zidane always wins the Champions League with his manager. But I just I struggle to see it. You know, what looking at the the, the malaise that's spread over this squad, it's not just it's not just this season. It, it's ever since it's since Christmas and uh, Zidane's reappointment back in around February. Just it hasn't changed anything. Uh, it hasn't hasn't galvanised the team. And what I see from them is really concerning, honestly, because they don't really seem to have that much of a tactical plan. They never did, let's be clear. Yeah. Uh, they they played pretty reckless stuff, uh, even when they were winning it, but they had a certain Cristiano Ronaldo who just converted in the big moments every single time and got them through games. They always conceded, but they always just scored more, and they had a really strong mentality, and that seems to have seeped away a little bit. Um, and Zidane's tactical ability has really come under the microscope over the last year, and I'm sort of convinced he doesn't really have much of it because the teams that he produces and the 11s that he builds they're not they're not balanced they're not they're not well put together and you know the fact that he was cons- consistently facing someone like Pogba and Eriksen in the summer mm. you know everyone can see that they've already got Modric and Kroos and they've got Isco and they've got Asensio and they've got Vinicius I could go on and on and on it's like that's not the player you need man like it's, it's not going to help it's <laughs> they're good players but it's not going to help so I don't really give Real Madrid a chance with Zidane in charge because I think his loyalty to the declining players is, is still too strong and I uh, don't think he's actually got it in him to produce a balanced 11 out of the players that he now has in order to get past the best teams. Mm-hmm. The, the, to, to finish off, Sam, well, at least in terms of to, to round up the the other Champions League behemoths, um, Juve, PSG, Atletico, uh, what way do you see them going this year? Can can Juve kind of like finally nail this? Juve, 
Juve, yes, I think they can. With Ronaldo as a factor, you 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 always believe that that's possible, um, mm. and I I, I I think that they're, they're a contender as well as Atletico Madrid. Um, Atleti, I like what they did in the summer. They managed to turn what could have been an absolute shit sandwich into something really positive, <laughs> because they lost they lost Godin, they lost Philippe Luis, they lost Juan Fran, they lost Griezmann, um, they lost a load of legends, and somehow they lost Rodri as well to Man City. And somehow they managed to come mm. out of it looking quite good. Um, with a lot of new players, they've got a really deep squad. I think they're going to go back to what they're very good at, which is winning games 1-0. And on the Champions League knockout stage, that can work really, really well. Um, so I've got them as a sort of dark horse contender, really, where actually quite a lot of people, maybe post-Griezmann, wouldn't think so. But with PSG, wasn't actually that impressed with the pickup of Mauro Cardi. I think they thought if they thought Neymar was difficult to deal with, they're in for a real shock here. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> One then tall, yeah, yeah. One's the one who's difficult to deal with. Surely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Don't get them in the same room together. Absolutely yeah. not. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen there. But uh, PSG definitely went more workmanlike with their business, and they tried to buy players who would do the dirty work to allow the others to flourish. But I'm not sure they got they became strong enough to actually win this competition. Um, I've had a lot of flack from PSG fans over the last couple of weeks. Uh, on this subject, so I, I, but I'm sticking to it. Uh, I would actually like to see it though. That's the thing. Um, I'd like to see a fresh, a fresh name and a fresh face trouble trouble the Champions League, just like Ajax did last season, in a way like Tottenham did. And it would be cool to see Neymar go and actually like fulfil this kind of destiny he's carved out for himself um, and bail himself out of this abyss that he appears to have placed himself in with a Champions League win. But I, I just don't necessarily see it. But Juve and Atleti, a hundred percent contenders for me. Um, Sam, on Atletico for a moment um, and specifying on one single player, how good is Joao Felix? Uh, is he the best young player in the world? Is he top five? Um, he seems to get off to a, an unbelievable start so far this year. Yeah, he's been excellent. He he is genuinely brilliant. Um, he's he's one of my personal kind of triumphs in a way because I remember watching <laughs> him in the UEFA Youth League um, for the Benfica yeah. 19s. Yeah, I remember thinking, you tweeting about him. And thinking, oh my God, this kid can do anything he wants with the ball. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you get a feeling like that about a player, uh, you keep an eye on them. And he's, he's, what I would say is that he has accelerated at a rate I had absolutely no idea he could. Um, maybe at a rate that he didn't, he didn't foresee either. And uh, he's become this incredible, like almost Galactico-like player and presence that everybody knows. Um, over the summer, I actually sat down and interviewed him for ten minutes. Uh, which was really cool. And we went through some of his highlights and his English is surprisingly good. He you know, did an interview in a third language with me for 10 minutes on camera and only had to translate a couple of phrases through a translator, which was really impressive. One thing that struck me is that he's super confident. And the other thing that struck me is that he's really skinny. I don't know where the rest of it is. <laughs> um, I, I, I thought I was going to bowl him over with my handshake. It's really weird. It's, 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 that's when you realise that actually he is a kid. Um, Mm. But he's super, and I think over the first couple of weeks of the La Liga season, we saw him. Uh, we saw him get his first assist, uh, and we saw him him embark on this crazy dribble that ended up in a penalty in the first game that sadly Morata missed. But he beat three players, nutmegged another, and got into the box and got hacked out. And you know, we always talk about like uh, Eden Hazard or a Jack Grealish getting fouled constantly in games. Felix is going to be the same. He's gonna he's gonna he's gonna receive some really rough treatment, but that's the ultimate sign of respect. He's amazing. Um, looking at maybe some of the, the dark horses in the competition, um, obviously IX last year were kind of the darlings of the tournament today, going all the way to the semi-finals. They got off to a flying start against Lille. Um, do you see anyone in particular kind of maybe emulating that this year? Yeah, the new Ajax. Um, well, I'll start with Ajax. <laughs> Ajax is still good. Ajax is doing Ajax. Ajax is still good. Um, they're better than I thought they would be. They, they they lost far fewer players than I think most people anticipated, and they still look they still look pretty decent. They're not what they were. Um, wouldn't be wouldn't be sat here forecasting a semi final appearance, but I'm pleasantly surprised with how good they've turned out to be after what could have been a really horrid summer. Um, the Red Bulls um, were grouped together as Salzburg and Leipzig. Um, Leipzig obviously much stronger on paper but Salzburg very unknown to some but I think have really announced themselves on Tuesday obviously with Erling Haaland scoring a hat-trick and Zoboslai playing really well it's basically just a team of wonder kids that you'd want to buy on on Football Manager Uh, and Leipzig under Nagelsmann looking very very good so far 
Um, also, I'd say Leon. They didn't get off to the best start last night, um, although they were, I think, significantly the better team against Zenit. Um, I like Leon, and they might be that kind of on the night team that you that, that might be able to do something. Mm. And I'd also give that tag to Leverkusen as well. You never know what you're going to get when you play a game against Leverkusen. And as I say, over 34 games in the Bundesliga, that's not going to be enough to get you silverware. But on 12 separate nights, uh, it might be enough if everything goes your way and you get that little bit of luck. Because Leverkusen are so dangerous and so fun. Sam, to uh, to, to beat a bit of a, a personal drum that I've kind of had for the last year, 18 months, uh, what do you think of Atalanta's prospects in the, in the competition this year? They've been handed a seemingly favourable draw and that like obviously City are going to win that group. But like you've outlined, why Shakhtar aren't as strong as they once were, and Zagreb would, would obviously not the strongest opposition, opposition either. Do you think Atlanta could have some joy, maybe into kind of the last sixteen, and see how it happens? Well, I definitely think they can get through the group. I predi- I've predicted as such, and you know, since Man City have started uh, started racking up those defensive injuries, you just picture in your head the thought, the sight of uh, Alejandro Gomez, Josip Ilicic, and Duvan Zapata tearing towards a terrified Nicolas Otamendi and reeling Fernandinho. And hey, all of a sudden, first in the group doesn't seem completely out of the question. I wouldn't quite call it there, but I do expect them to get to the round of sixteen. And then, as we've seen in the in the last few tournaments, you, you never really quite know what happens from there. But I think they'll progress, and then I think I think whatever happens, they'll always excite because they're 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 awesome to watch. Like the the front the front three are just scintillating, aren't they? So uh, I think I think they'll catch a lot of ca- uh, casual and casual fans there as well. Sam, to to move away from you know Champions League chat for just for a little bit, um, I mean obviously. I followed you, you know, for a number of years, and I know you a little bit better maybe than the two lads here. And um, it was kind of a question that I had on. I've I've followed you since you had maybe like two, three thousand followers, and back then, you know, you hadn't joined Bleacher Report then, and you were kind of doing a lot of, like freelance and blog and stuff. And you used to tweet like regularly, well, reasonably regularly on on, on Villa, like the team you support. And um, how is that? Obviously, you've exploded with Bleacher Report, and you know you're up to like sixty-six thousand followers now. Congratulations! And is um, has your behaviour changed? You know, in and around that, you feel like maybe it's not the professional thing to do. And you know, do do a lot of journalists kind of feel like that that they can't tweet about the teams that they follow? Um, I I don't as you as have you identified and, and noticed like I don't tweet about Villa as much um, yeah. part, part of that is because um, I'm, my Twitter account is my it's, it's my professional account more or less mm-hmm. and, and my profession mm-hmm. is to talk about football and under under the BR umbrella we talk about the, the top clubs like we don't we don't really deal with the championship or league one so part of the reason for that is because Villa went down yeah uh, yeah so for, for three years they really weren't relevant to my job and um, mm-hmm. that was really sad but it did happen and that meant that I would I would I would tweet less about them. Um, and mm-hmm. there is also an element of professionalism that comes in as well. Um, I, yeah, it's just it's just a, it's one of those things, isn't it? You're a fan, and you know, I stood there on Monday night watching Jack Grealish make the wrong decision three, four, <laughs> six, five, nine, fifty-five times in the final third as, as, as Villa searched for that that winner against West Ham that they mm. felt they needed to get, and obviously they all panicked. And I was stood in my lounge, uh, you know, sweating and screaming at the TV just the same and then to, to go from that to then tweeting uh, there's like a professional line and, and I'm mm. sometimes a little bit concerned that I may cross it because of the emotion yeah, um, yeah. so I basically just decide not to and I just ring my dad and scream at him yeah it's only because I, the reason I ask really is because uh, like I know of journalists and you know fairly reputable journalists um, like yourself and, and people who work for, for big publications in, in the UK and like I know that they I know the teams that they support but they never tweet about them and it's like or not not, not in, a, in a non-professional capacity and it's just you know I'm sitting there going just tweet what you want for just you know a couple of minutes do you know what I mean give me the authenticity like do you know that kind of way but um yeah but I know where you're coming from and I, I like mm. I get I get I get called um you know through the for the BR platform is, is is huge it has millions mm. of followers mm. and I all sorts of DMs on Instagram and all sorts of shit in my mentions um <laughs> and I get called I get called biased for and against most of the top teams on a daily basis because mm. people 
people are unable to sort of process criticism of their team or their favourite player in any way other than, oh, well, you hate us, so that's why you're saying this. Yeah. So this is, this is kind of like a daily battle that I go through. And um, for that reason, I try not to st- I try not to appear on social media like too outwardly, you know, uh, supporting of one team or even even Villa. Um, and it's a weird one because like you know, supporting Villa is quite inoffensive. Like if I supported yeah. if I supported Manchester United, and then I was to tweet negatively about Man City, I would have loads of people going, "Yeah, but we know that we know that you support our rivals." So this is obviously just coming from a different place. Mm. Instead of that's not really a problem, but I've just decided, I just I don't. To be fair, Keen, I don't tweet any, anywhere near as much as I used to anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so the volume has gone all the way down, and with it, obviously, it's come down comparatively. Yeah, and really, I suppose just to finish off with, um, I noticed the it was a Twitter conversation between um, a rugby journalist that I follow. And, and and another guy who kind of like he's a, he would be classed as maybe like a, he looks after a fanzine, and the two guys were talking about like how they view journalism through the prism of being a fan, and it was kind of like the the, the rugby guy was saying, look, like I'm I'm completely a journalist. I, I don't I don't really tweet opinions, and the other guy was like, look, he's seen himself as a content creator, not not a journalist and not a blogger. And I just kind of wanted to get your opinion on, like, you know, how modern journalism sort of ties itself in with a lot of opinion features that you would see these days. Um, well, a, a quick opinion feature is for for a website that basically needs to pile out content as quickly as possible mm. or in, in high volume, which is, you know, quite a lot of them. Um, an opinion feature is sometimes all you've got. Because yeah. um, there's, there's a finite amount of news and there's a finite, finite amount of things you can say before you need to give a right to something. And you're like, well, what, what do you think? What do you think about the Champions League? Just give me 500 words. Yeah, that, that, that kind of happens. And mm-hmm. also, it's the easiest way to start writing about football and therefore try and launch yourself into the industry. Mm-hmm. Because if you've never written an article about football before, you're not going to turn up to the best awards and try and get an interview, are you? You're going to write... <laughs> Um, this is why I think Virgil van Dijk is the best centre-back in the world. You know, that's, that's what you're going to write. So they, they're completely intertwined. And as, con- as the face of con- content has changed and the, face- and the way we consume it, like, you can't really get away from that. So mm. I, don't really, I don't really understand why that journalist wouldn't tweet opinions. That's really, that's really weird. That's just kind of a boring life to live, I think. Um, yeah, he it may, was. It, he may just not want to be attacked for his opinions. To be fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, yeah. Like it was just because in in terms of I, I was listening to um, a podcast there a couple of weeks ago and it was like John Simpson, the the you know revered BBC war correspondent, and like he had said that one of his greatest regrets was that he offered an opinion on on a piece he'd written on an edit. Like it was it was essentially an editorial, but he'd at the very end, kind of given an, an like a really like polarized opinion on, on something, and he it was one of the things that he most regretted. Now, obviously, you can't. It's very difficult to compare a war correspondent with a sports yeah. journalist, but it was it was a long. Uh, it got me. Th- it got me thinking about like how sports journalists are kind of um, how the, how the industry is gone, and it's not like you know maybe like 20 years ago you were kind of like it was you're a touchline reporter and you basically just give you know match reports you know you really just wrote the match report and it wasn't an opinion but now it just seems to be like it's like you said it's just so many publications and and basically they just want opinions and opinions and opinions but it's not i'm not saying that it's a bad thing or a good thing but um it's just it's crazy the way the industry's gone over the last maybe like 15 20 years yeah maybe there could be some kind of um well first of all actually i saw some you know that twitter account of freezing cold takes or takes exposed yeah yeah um, which is the bane of my life um (laughs) it's uh there was a there was a someone found a really old news clipping of like a like an nfl journalist from like 19 the 1970s in a newspaper and the piece was like why i guarantee you that the broncos will not make the super bowl and it was like all written in the first person and it was absolute garbage so first (laughs) first of all it may not have changed that much but secondly um there may be some American influence in there. Obviously, the we have access to, to, to everything in that regard. Um, mm. And the American style of reporting uh, is very different to ours. And 
quite a lot of outlets in America, and BR are included in this because I'm the recipient of this, they make their writers or their journalists or their pundits or columnists into personalities. Mm. Um, and they build brands around them. And that's why they have lots of followers. And that's why they're, they're kind of influential in that way. And that's why actually it can be quite opinion led. So like all of the ranking stuff I do on BR Football is like, it's my opinion. Um, mm. And whether I like it or not, it's actually, I have to do it and I, it's attributed to me. And that builds a persona of me. Mm. Um, so it, it, is, it is naturally opinion led. It's no longer... Uh, this is what happened. So it's a, mm. it's a difference, and I wonder if it, I wonder if there's there's just external influences from different countries and the way they've done it that have changed that. Because I have mm. noticed that too, and I'm not blaming the Americans, but they've definitely had a part. They've played a part in it. I mean, BR is American, so that's, mm. that's yeah, the yeah. Case. Well, I suppose well, at the I same time, sorry, Keen, just just I suppose that like at the same time, I mean, who's the most revered British sports writer of all time? Matthew McIlvenny, and mm. nobody would say that he just did straight down the line. Here's what happened: match reports. So kind of to your point earlier, Sam, with the NFL correspondent as bad take in the 70s, to an extent, that kind of opinion and the editorialising of the facts is kind of what's made people really kind of grow mythologies around sports writers to the extent that it ever has happened. Sure. Try, held up. Yeah, just, just try not to go too far the other way like Stephen A. Smith does. Yeah. And you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to, to where uh, the Santai brand goes from here. Well, onwards and upwards after this. Conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sky is the limit. <laughs> um, to sign off quickly, um, I think you probably hinted on a, on a few suggestions that you might have, but if you were to call a, a Champions League winner at this point, who would be top of your list? Um, do you know what? My official answer to this question to everyone that asks me is I don't, I don't answer hypothetical questions about Champions League <laughs> until after Christmas. However... <laughs> Since you've been very nice, um, I will. I would say, even even with the loss last night, I've got Liverpool uh, in 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 a very good position alongside Barcelona, and neither of them have started perfectly. Um, but I would still back the talent. Um, I would, at this stage, you would have to back the talent and the squad um, as long as they look like they could get it together. Uh, mm. It's a bit like when people were predicting France to win the World Cup. There was almost no evidence for that leading up to the World Cup because they were a shambles. But they had the players to do it. And you just have to, if you have the faith that they'll pull it together, then you can do it. And Liverpool and Barca are the two teams that fall into that category for me. So, one of those two. Very good. Sam Tai of Bleach Report, thanks for joining the show. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam.